Well, the reason we have our praise concerts and our fire up the grills and our other things is because we still believe that Christ is able to save. And we believe that there's lots of people in the Durham region that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it breaks our hearts to know that. And uh, God has put in our, our lives a desire to reach people and tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. So Christ is able still to save. That's our great message. Well, we are... Um, Embarking upon our new series, uh, Because You Asked, and you did ask. You asked 39 questions, and uh, we are not able to answer all of your questions because we don't have 39 weeks in the summer. So some of you, uh, I hope, aren't too disappointed, but we tried to pick out some, some topics that uh, are important for our season right now. And all the questions that you sent in, I'm keeping, and we'll try to work them in somewhere um, as God lays on our hearts different series and where we're going with things and uh, hopefully it'll be fine. But today, uh, the question that we're looking at is how, how can the church stay healthy? Or how can the, um, yeah, how can the church stay healthy? And um, so I decided by way of introduction, maybe I should Google what's, how's the state of the Canadian church or what's, what's going on with the Canadian church and um, well, what's happening to Canadian churches is what I actually typed in. And um, I discovered not really good things are happening to Canadian churches. In fact, it's pretty sad when you type in this question. What's you know, when you type in what's happening in Canadian churches, you should read thousands and thousands of people are coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and the mission of the gospel is going out all over the world and all of that. Instead, what I'm reading is about churches closing. That's what this whole story is about. Trinity Anglican Memorial Church in Montreal will close this year. It was built in 1922, officially opened in 1926. A gigantic church, particularly in its day, that was, it was built to, to house a thousand people. It was built as a, in, a, in, in terms of a, dedicated as a memorial to the soldiers who lost their lives in World War I and uh, as, as an outpost for the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And it is closing this year along with churches in Windsor and Brantford and all over. In fact, I discovered that that once a week a church closes in Quebec. For the last decade, a church closes to never open again in the province of Quebec. So that's 52 churches a year at least for the last decade in Quebec. And that's just one province in our country. And that churches are closing, closing, closing. And many of them are, are, are being turned over to uh, new immigrants who've come in and religions like Islam or turned into Buddhist temples or turned into Sikh um, worship uh, settings and not advancing the gospel. We are not reading about churches planting and churches growing in Canada here this place where we talk about as a Christian country. And so when we talk about how can the church remain healthy, it really is a critical question. And I thought it might be the best question to open up our series on, on, uh, on because you asked. And so um, the best place to look, of course, for a healthy church is in the model of Acts, what was happening at the beginning. And we'll look at the beginning when Christ inaugurated the, the church and the growth of the church and to see and to measure ourselves against the book of Acts. So we're going to take a sweeping look at uh, that whole book today. Last week, uh, if you'll remember, we took a one-on-one -on -one approach to evangelism and witness and looked at what what God does with one person to one person in Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian. We, we talked about it not being a formula, but an example of how uh, the sovereign God has committed himself to reach people one by one. 
and the, uh, the huge importance of the, the gospel message, one person to one person. But today I want to take the lens back and, and make a wide-angle lens at the look uh, of, uh, of what God is doing in terms of, uh, of mission and, and looking at the whole book of Acts and the, the general mission of the church and what God is up to. Can we pray as we open up our service, uh, our time here with uh, the Word of God? Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning and what we've already witnessed about the power of God among us, testimonies uh, of individuals of, of how you've worked in their lives and saved them. We believe, Christ, that you're still able to save and you are a saving God. And uh, then to, to testify by way of song from our hearts, the gospel message and how much we love you and how much you mean to us and to encourage each other, uh, even in uh, times of difficulty, to, to trust in the Lord and, and to rejoice in today, uh, not to worry about tomorrow, not to think about uh, the things that you've not asked us to do, but rather just to, to enjoy in the present our moment with you. And that's what we've done today. I pray now as you speak to us from your word, O oh God, I pray that you would open up our hearts, that we would check ourselves and our church in terms of the, the measurement of healthiness, and uh, that, Lord, where we fall short, would you convict us first of all and then commission us by repentance to uh, follow your design and your paradigm for a pattern for how a church is healthy I pray in Jesus name and for his sake amen so you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1 we're going to go uh, looking through it um, in various places but by way of a longer sort of title of where we're going today, it's, I'm looking at an effective biblical approach from the book of Acts at being a Christ-witnessing people in a Christ-rejecting world. And uh, some of my ideas are, are surfaced from uh, 30 Years That Changed the World, a great book by Michael Green. But one of the things I want to do in terms of introduction today is I, I noted in my research of, of thinking about the culture that we're ministering in, how parallel it really is. And I've said this to you before, but it, it's becoming... a increasingly obvious to me of how parallel our culture is to the first century culture that the church began, wherein the church began. And so what works here will work, what works in Acts will work here. The culture is virtually parallel. And I just want to pull three things out real quickly so that you can see how much today is like the time of the Roman situation. Um, that was oppressing and persecuting the church. The parallels are stark, and, and uh, it really helps us to see that the book of Acts, which, by the way, was written by Luke, um, who was a Gentile, and then he writes, writes the book of Acts, how um, relevant the approach is to the very date we live in right today. And the first is this. Uh, the first parallel to the first century world that I notice right now today is, is um, religious people trusting in self-righteousness. We live in a Canadian cult context that would pretty much classify itself as religious. Um, in most of the numbers and most of the polls, people consider themselves to be religious at some level. But it's, it's um, what's really critical for us to understand about the nature of the culture that we're ministering to and why we bring a message that they need is because for the most part, the religion that is around us is based upon self-righteousness. And um, 
couple of weeks ago, you know that some of us were in Israel, and we bumped, we bumped into a guy, a rabbi, by the name of Rabbi Moshe, who was a Canadian uh, Orthodox Jewish rabbi who had emigrated to Jerusalem, has been there for the last nine years, I think, or even maybe longer. I might have that wrong. Rabbi Moshe means ra- Rabbi Moses, actually. And uh, we had an opportunity to interact with him for about half an hour or so, whereby he was describing to us the distinction or difference between Orthodox Jew- Judaism versus Christianity. And from his perspective, he was trying to tie together how closely parallel and how closely linked we were. And uh, the more I heard him talk, the more distant I realized we were from what he was saying. And in particular, he said this, and I, I'm summarizing a whole bunch, um, but he said this, I don't need Jesus because I love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and body. And he said, I, therefore, I am doing what I am called to do. And uh, I, I was listening to this man really articulate what I have been preaching against my whole life. Not love the, not, by the way, not preaching against love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and body. Because you know that that's what I preach. That's, that's what the Bible tells us. But here he said, I don't need atonement for my sins as you Christians seem to think you needed Jesus because I'm already in love with God. I couldn't be more in love with God if I tried. I love him totally. He is relying on his love for God. In Isaiah chapter 64 and um, verse 6, it says this, How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins." We have around us, and he, he articulated and was exa- an example of those who grade their own lives on the basis of their own righteousness. And the Bible in both the Old and New Testament says you can't do that. You see, I am not relying on God's, on my love for God I am 100% relying on God's love for me. And there is a world of difference. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Why? Because he was the sacrifice for sin. And a righteousness from God has been given to us in the gospel through Jesus Christ Not our self-righteousness, which we grade ourselves and say, I I love the Lord and I decided that I, in grading myself, am pleasing to the Lord. And the Bible says that kind of righteousness is viewed by God as filthy rags. Around us, we have a culture of people who are grading themselves and saying, I am good enough for God. When God will only receive a righteousness he gives us through Christ Jesus. 
The second parallel that I know that's really significant is the increasing hostile state. In other words, the political environment, the political scene in opposition to Christianity. Um, Canada worships human rights. That's the God of the age in Canada. In fact, our Prime Minister goes all over the world trumpeting with great pride the human rights status of Canada. Now, I want to tell you that I'm not against human rights. The problem is when we unravel what the human rights we worship are, it begins to become disconcerting. You see, the human rights that are supposed that are they're ultimately good for the state, I would call human wrongs that are bad for the soul. Abortion, euthanasia, gender disorientation, increasing recreational use of mind-altering substances pagan educational agenda. All of these are the gods, the god of human rights in Canada. In the first century, the Christians were persecuted because they refused to bow down to the gods of the Romans that the Romans believed benefited the state. So in other words, the Christians were bad for the state because the Christians wouldn't bow down to the gods that were credited for benefiting the state. Increasingly, as Christians refuse to bow down to the human wrongs that are bad for the soul, we will be deemed bad for the state. And persecution will increase to the proportions of the first century. I'm convinced. So never before have we needed a more healthy church than we do right now. And thirdly, the proliferation of false teachers from within Christianity. In the first century, there were many false teachers that arose and preached different gospels. Uh, those who are deconstructing the sacred doctrine and extra-biblical revelation and those who are decommissioning the authority of the scriptures. I'm going to save that, by the way. I'm not going to talk very much about that point because that's our question next week. I have listed for you in the bulletin all the questions that are coming up and the dates that they're coming up. But next week, we're going to talk about how to spot false teaching and false teachers. So I won't talk about that this morning. But the proliferation of it is unnerving. And the, the way God's people are falling for untruth is discouraging, to say the least. So... These three major things are parallel, complete parallel to the first century. Do we need a healthy church? We need a healthy church. So let's look in the scriptures, look in the book of Acts to see uh, the five marks of a Christ-witnessing people or a healthy mission. The first is found right at the beginning of Acts chapter 1. Look at here. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all, the, uh, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. He's referring to the book of Luke. Until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Who are we? I just want to say, so we understand who we are before we even embark upon this. We are witnesses to the instructions of Jesus. That, that's the church. If you want to know what a healthy church is, a healthy church is a church that continues to witness 
to the instructions of Jesus. Go make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to obey whatsoever things I've commanded you to do. We are those who bring the instructions of Jesus. We are caretakers of divine truth. That's who we are. We are those who hold firmly to God's word. I would submit to you that the churches that are turning out their lights for good are those churches that long ago abandoned their mission to be those who held passionately to the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what's happening around us. So, what's the first mark then on the basis of this text and, and others? What's the first mark then of a healthy church? It is this. If God is to use us, we have to get right and stay right with God. Now we do that, we obey His Word. As I continue to read on, it says here in verse 3, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father, wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John... John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to see here that, that from the very get-go, Jesus established the kind of people who he would be able to use, and those would be people who would obey him. They would get right with him, first of all, and they would stay right with him by obeying the Lord. The mission requires the full empowerment of the Holy Spirit because the church is a movement from God, about God, for God, and through God alone. And in the absence of the Holy Spirit, we're just another social gathering of people. The churches that shut their lights down are those that long ago, God wrote over them Ichabod, the Spirit of God has departed. And if the Spirit of God departs, it won't be long until you can't pay your bills anymore and you turn out the lights and the party's over. That's simply the way it happens in this country and in any country. God's mission is about obedience. Do not leave Jerusalem. And if you do not and you obey me, you will receive what I promise. If the church is an obedient church, we get what Jesus promised us. That's how it works. Therefore, God will not risk the mission of Christ on self-dependent people. In fact, he quits speaking to people who habitually disobey. That's what happens. Obedience is non-negotiable. We are living and responsible to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ that requires us to be obedient people. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. That's a command. We are to set our affections above. We are people who are called to be holy because God is holy. We, we can't let our work, we can't let our, 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 our hobbies, we can't let our, our money, we can't let our pleasure, we can't let our things get in the way of obeying the Lord Jesus Christ and still maintain a healthy church. Today, I would submit to you that knowing the truth and doing the truth are increasingly becoming disconnected, and it becomes very 
disconcerting to a world that is lost and can't understand. Why do you say this thing, but you live this way? We're confusing them. A healthy church lives what it believes in the church and outside of the church. If God is to use us, we have to get right with God and stay right with God. I heard Charles Price preaching on this kind of a topic years ago, uh, the former pastor of People's Church. And he made this point with respect to obedience and the church and being healthy. He said this, I'm not quoting him directly, but I'm close. Often obedience gets crowded out by organization. Be very careful. Structure and administration can replace connection with God. Organization starts to dictate to the organism. Each of these churches that are closing down come from what we call mainline Protestant churches that are high in structure, high in policy, high in organization, so organized, so policied, so administrative that their structures started to carry them instead of their obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Be very careful because the organization, the system, the formalism, the ritualism can start to dictate the organic, the organism of listening to the Lord and obeying Him, listening to His Word. Sometimes we're so busy about human policies and structures that we've forgotten and preempted the voice of the Holy Spirit. We're so, we, we're so used to doing this, God, I don't need you anymore. We, we got this. We know how to do this. We're organized. We're structured. Listen, Calvary Baptist Church is no exception. We can be in danger of this. We can almost close our eyes and we know how to do church. Let us never go there or get there. We must listen to the voice of God. Secondly, I want you to see something about them. They were constantly in prayer. The only thing that will challenge us, our natural default to self-dependency and self-reliance is to be transformed in our closet in prayer before the Lord. It is there we learn to rely upon God instead of the natural tendency for people to rely on ourselves. So uh, I looked at the book of Acts to prove what we're talking about and I decided to list for you all the texts that talk about prayer so that you would see it, it would pop out at you and you would go, wow. I'm waiting. This is a wow. Like, when you go through the book of Acts and all of these are the verses that talk about prayer, it, does it not spell out something to us? Does it not say something to us that in the early church, one of the high priorities was prayer? They were praying all the time. Look at verse 14 in the same chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 1. They all joined together constantly in prayer. 
And over and over again, you read this in the scriptures. Prayer, prayer, they prayed. They learned to wait upon the Lord versus activism. You know, we're, we're the kind of people, we want to get things done. We want to do things. But the early church knew full well that the mission of the church belongs to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. While we want to be active and engaged people and energetic people, we need to hear from the Lord. Do you remember King Saul who was given the responsibility of being king over Israel? And Samuel the prophet said to him, look, wait for me. Don't do anything until I show up to offer the sacrifice. Before you go to battle, king, don't wait for me. And Samuel showed up a little bit late. King Saul got antsy, decided as an activist king, I got to do something. And so he offered the sacrifices, which were not his responsibility to do. And it was on that day that God decided... That Saul could no longer represent him as king over Israel. Why? Because he wouldn't listen to God. If a church is going to remain healthy, it has to be a church that listens to God. First of all, we obey God's word, and then we learn to listen for the voice of God in prayer. We learn to talk to God. We learn not to be activists until we have talked to God and prayed to Him. What Christ has done and what Christ will do is found in His Word, and we need to know that. We need to be students of doctrine and understand our theology and master it. But what Christ is doing in the moment requires a present connection with, through communication with Him and and to follow him requires a, a present conversation with God. That's, that's what abiding with Christ is all about. Only and always, of course, as it aligns with the word of God. What Jesus is doing, we need to hide, first of all, in our hearts and watch for it and wait for it and feed it and follow it and then finance it. Another great Charles Priceism. If you read through the book of Acts, you will notice that it was mostly when people were in prayer that the Holy Spirit commissioned and, 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 and spoke to them. I'll give you just a few quick examples. Last week in Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian, it was when they were in prayer that God spoke and commissioned them to go to the road, go to, Philip to go to the road to Gaza. It was when Peter and Cornelius were in prayer in different places that Peter went to Caesarea and led Cornelius to the Lord and the great mission endeavor to the Gentiles began. It was when the church was in prayer in Acts chapter 13 that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. It was when Ananias was in prayer in Damascus that the Holy Spirit spoke to the now-converted Apostle Paul and told him to go to the man who's praying, Ananias. Over and over again, it's when the church is in prayer. Thirdly, the third thing I see in the Scriptures is this, unity. Uh, here we are at um, verse one, or chapter 1, verse 14 again. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, I, 
when I looked at that, I thought, why, why would the writer, why did Luke think it was important to mention these details about how they were in prayer together? Well, first of all, you notice that, that they were in prayer together, uh, both genders, both men and women. That, that's a, a startling thing. When you're coming from a very patriarchal kind of system and all of a sudden the gospel opens up this whole ministry partnership of prayer men and women in prayer that that will be the the model of the church but not only that but he adds these other details Mary the mother of Jesus was with them and his brothers in other words Jesus brothers why is that such an important detail? Well, if you know anything about the life of Christ and what happened, is for the most part during his mission, his brothers were having none of it. So for, for certain, there must have been some hard feelings between the disciples and the family of Jesus. We're like, man, we're going through all of this. Your own family isn't even buying into this mission. And so we discover that after the crucifixion and the resurrection, God does a powerful work in the family of Jesus. Now his disciples are part of, the, or his, his brothers are part of the early church. So we have this joining together. Hard feelings are now put aside. We're on a mission together. The church can't afford to be divided. It has to be united together, the united cause. It's about unity. Uh, Michael Green writes this, very important. God cannot bless disunity, and he will not, for then the church would be proclaiming a lie, maintaining the reconciliation Christ came to bring all who trust him, yet manifesting nothing but division. There is a very clear teaching in the scripture. In the New Testament, we are told to mark out those who cause division among us. And who put obstacles in the way. In the Old Testament, God says, I hate six things. And one of them is, in Proverbs, those who sow discord. And why is that? Why does God hate sowers of discord and those who cause divisions and put obstacles in the way? Because they demonstrate in their lives a disdain for the blessing of God. For his favor, in, in favor of their own wicked agenda, their own personal agendas. When you, or if you, or I hope you aren't. I mean, this is a very serious matter. When you read in your Bibles something that God hates, it's not something you want to be. And it's very, very crucial in the, in the whole enterprise of Christianity that the early realities of healthy church and the ongoing realities of healthy church are a unity of cause, a unity of purpose, a unity with one another, seeking the, the good of each other, loving one another, coming together, helping one another. Why is that so critical? Well, first of all, that's what God blesses. And why does he bless that? Because the outside world is disconnected and disunited and at odds with each other and at strife with each other. And I can tell you that a church that fights, a church that keeps on fighting will one day, turn this, God will turn the switch off and it'll be done. And why does he do that? Because he protects the community 
from a church like that. God will protect lost people from people who cause disunity because he doesn't want the gospel to look like that. That's not the gospel. Sometimes when churches close down, it's because they just wouldn't stop fighting. And God closed them down, if you can imagine, to protect lost people from that church. So how important is unity? Vitally important. If you are one who sows discord among the brothers, if you are one who causes divisions, if you are one who puts obstacles in the way of the agenda of Jesus Christ, repent of it. You are at odds with God. I want to go to the fourth point now. In Acts chapter 13, there's some pretty interesting things that take place. Um, what's the fourth thing that we notice? One, one of the things that's interesting about the mission of the early church and who they tended to target for the gospel. If you remember, the, the apostles went to synagogues. Why did they go to synagogues? They went to synagogues because there were God-fearing people there. In, our, in the country of Canada, whether it's Islam, Hinduism, Sikhism, or marginal, um, dead orthodoxy churches, it is popu- they are populated, these worship centers are populated with religious people who are for the most part God-fearing. God-fearing people were the first target, generally, of the early apostles. When we are thinking about strategy of healthy church evangelism, our primary target, our first target, are God-fearing people. And how do you do that? Here's what the early church did. Michael Green's statement is healthy here. Get the center of the fire hot and people will be warmed on its outskirts and drawn in. I have for most of my ministry life, if not all of my ministry life, believed that the best method of evangelism is discipleship. It is first and foremost seeking through the power of God to have the disciples of Jesus Christ white hot for Jesus. If the disciples of Jesus Christ are white hot for Jesus, the fire of their passion, the heat of their love for Jesus will be felt by the people on the fringes who are looking for that. Their whole lives as God-fearers, they've been looking for something that's real about God. And they've been looking in the wrong places. They've been seeing the wrong places. We heard an excellent illustration yesterday of this very fact. The sun is 93 million miles away from us. But when you go out in a summer day and you're out in the sun and the sun is blazing hot on your face, you're like, wow, that is hot. And so most of us realize if it's, if it's that hot 93 million miles away, how hot must it be on the face of the sun? That's what Calvary should be. Calvary Baptist Church should be like that so that whether people are 20 miles away from here or not, they're like, it is so hot there for Jesus Christ that we feel the warmth where we are. 
and we want to get closer to the warmth. What they did in the early church was discipled them and they knew that if they came to faith that they would be discipled and looked after and loved and it was attractive and, and it, was, it was something that drew, drew them and compelled them to come. The best outreach program is first a spiritually healthy in-reach makeover because you simply can't export what you haven't imported. Now you can't ignore holiness and and, and unity and prayer and then try to drag people into your midst. They're not going to come. They're not going to be interested. We make disciples and then we send disciples. We invest in people first. And then we assist them on the mission. You know, a, a group of us were in a church in, in Nazareth a couple of weeks ago. Think about it. A few of us were in a church in Nazareth, the town of Jesus, if you can imagine. And we were in a church of... Uh, maybe 50 to 70 people, and, and uh, we didn't speak a lick of their language because they spoke Arabic. And so we sat down and we joined with them in their service, and there is a common language of fire. It's joyous praise. We saw them, and dem they demonstrated to us such a passion for whatever. We didn't know the language, but for, what, for certain we knew that whatever they were doing and whoever they were singing about and whatever they were excited about, we wanted it. And so while it wasn't in our language, we could tell it was passion and it was important. And when it was translated into our language, we were like, we want that. And everywhere in the Acts, you see the joyous, glorious celebration of those who've come to faith in Christ. That's why we host a, a worship concert here on a Sunday night in June and invite you to bring people who don't even know the Lord. And say, wait a second, isn't this a worship of God's people? Yes. Bring them to the fire that they might see and, and listen and hear, even if they don't understand all of it, they'll say, you know what, that's what I've always longed for. That's what I always wished I could have. I'm someone who's been searching for God or searching for that my whole life, to experience that kind of love, that kind of passion, that kind of concern, that kind of reality in my life. Get the center white hot, and the Holy Spirit will draw people to your warmth from all over the place, God-fearers. There's many of them in our region. They just haven't met God yet. Not only that, but there's something important about how we treat our community with our faith, with our gospel. If you warm the fringe with your fire, they will fight to keep your fire from going away. I want to show you something in, in the book of Acts which is really powerful. Paul, in one of his mission endeavors, ended up in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. I want you to look there for us. Just, just a very, it's a very almost obscure verse that most of us just pass over, but it's really, really important. In the book of Acts, in Acts 19, there was a great furor in the city of Ephesus because Christianity had been brought into their midst. And so you had this shout down from people who were serving the gods of Artemis. And so they come into the amphitheater in, in verse 28 and there's this great crowd shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they're shouting down because 
because uh, Gaius and Aristarchus are trying to talk about the gospel. And, and Paul wants to rush in there and he wants to start speaking and preaching and all of this kind of thing. And it says in verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him because they were going to tear him apart. Or at least they thought so. But here's the interesting thing. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. Do you know who these guys were? They're called the Asiarchs. The, the word, when you see there, the officials of the province, that's a Greek word they've made longer, which is called Asiarchs. Asiarchs were the, the arch, arch leaders or the high officials of Asia who were responsible to ensure that the imperial cult of worship was maintained. Everything in opposition to what Paul was preaching. And here they are, caring about Paul's life. Why? Because somehow, the Apostle Paul, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ, presented a compelling approach that caused officials in influential places to care about his life. Calvary Baptist Church should be so loved by our community, by those who don't know the Lord, by those who don't care about the Lord, by those who actually are in opposition to the Lord, that if the state wanted to run us out of here, they would come to our defense and say, no, leave them here. We enjoy the warmth of their fire. That's why it's important for us to, to be well thought of by the public schools around here. That's why we invest time and energy. That's why we invest time and energy in the, in, in the uh, apartment complexes and the dwelling places around here. We, it matters that those who are on the fringe of our fire are warmed by the heat and would look after us if push came to shove. And finally... In Acts chapter 16 and verse 6, Paul and his companions, it says, traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept, listen to it, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. People on mission with Jesus who are healthy learn to hold their own plans loosely because this is not our mission. This is Jesus' mission. And you will find in your life great periods of silence, perhaps, where you're not, you don't feel like you're hearing from God. But I promise you this, that the guidance of God often arrives when you want to do something he doesn't want you to do. Paul wanted to go into Asia. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. Paul wanted to go into Bithynia. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. You can write this down and look at it later, but Isaiah 30, 21 is that great message of, of God speaking to you. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. You will hear this voice behind you. 
often in our lives, why is this happening to me or why is this not happening to me? The Lord is driving you to His will, to His direction, to a new dependence on Him and trust in His plan. Regularly, that's the mission adventure of the early church and that's what healthy church is. In fact, if we read a little further into Paul and in, in, in what Paul wanted to do, we get to Acts 20, verses 3 to 4, you find out that he wanted to go to Rome for a really brief visit and then on his way to Spain. And you know what we learn? Paul's plans to go to Spain fell through because he went to heaven before he went to Spain. And we're, we're left scratching our heads because we... We know Paul was close with the Lord and, and, and he was constantly hearing from the Lord, but that's how you hear from the Lord. The Lord regularly changes your plans. You may be on the way to something that you really were convinced the Lord had you to do, but he will change that plan. In fact, as it turns out, Paul didn't have a short visit to Rome. He had a long visit to Rome, two years exactly of house arrest. That was not his plan. The church of Rome was 19 years old. Paul wanted to pop in, see how things were going, and get to Spain. Because Paul was all about ad advancing the gospel. He doesn't get to pop into Rome. He ends up being arrested in Rome, and he ends up being under house arrest for two years. And guess what? All kinds of guards came to know the Lord. That's what it says there. Because God's plan wasn't for Paul to pop over to Spain. It was to hang out in Rome for a while, even though he didn't want to, imprisoned, and actually evangelize a bunch of guards. And it not only says that, but many other people as well in Rome came to know the Lord. Acts 28, verse 17. The one thing we learn the longer we're in the journey together about our healthy life and a healthy church is that Colossians 3, 3 is true. Our lives are hidden in Christ. Our church is hidden in Christ. Our, our, we have died. When you come to know Christ, you die. And from then on, your life is hid in Christ. So that His agenda is now your agenda. And whether he uses you for a long time or a short time, a long time here or a short time there, it's his mission. That's why he brought you into it. So we've been purchased at a great price. And like Paul learned, how long we are kept out of heaven, it's his discretion. Paul ended up in heaven, and he wanted to be in Spain. And that's how it works. So Calvary, we keep our plans loose. We make them, but we keep them loose because Jesus is the head of the church. Amen? Amen. Father, we, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for the mission. And, oh, God, I pray that you would keep us individually healthy and you would keep us as a church healthy. For your great namesake, that we might have a product here that truly reflects the truth of the gospel, that the 
heat of the fire here would be felt and warm those on the fringes until you draw them into the center of the heat for Jesus sake. Amen. I'm firmly convinced that the Lord entrusts his mission to a church that is firmly committed to the Great Commission in the context of the Great Commandment to go into all the world and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, body and strength. So um, what is the health checklist? Make sure as a church and as an individual we go down this checklist today and make certain that we are obedient people that we're a prayerful people, that we're a united people, that we're a white-hot for Jesus people, and that we hold our plans loosely because Jesus is king. Jesus is the one who takes us on mission. And then we make certain the center is white-hot and we assist and send those into all the world. I encourage you to come back tonight just to hear about the three-year journey that we as a church have had with uh, a virtually unreached people. It's the story of elephants and witch doctors and Islam and the gospel on the same property. You won't want to miss it six o'clock tonight. Our Father and our God, I pray and thank you for your awesome word, for the power of the Holy Spirit, and oh God, I pray that you would continue to keep us on fire for the Lord. I pray that we would be an obedient, prayerful, united, white-hot, hold plans loosely people, oh God. And that Calvary Baptist Church that will be 90 years old next year will be proclaiming the gospel until the day Jesus Christ comes back, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.